to help keep the club running this month. And you've been listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to another episode of The Week on 3. I'm your host, Christy Lai. Hope you are having the loveliest of days. If it's your first time tuning in, I'll be sharing with you the most interesting and informative interviews from the past week here on Radio 3. With the pandemic going on full swing, some of us crave human interaction and just a sense of normality. This is when dating apps come in. You can easily meet people with just a click of a button. According to a survey by Hinge, more than 60% of its users felt lonely and were seeking relationships during the pandemic. If you're looking for some companionship, maybe it's time to get out there. There are so many apps out there, but which one should you choose? If you decided to take a leap of faith and get one of those apps or even meet someone, need to be sure to protect yourself and remember to take things slow. On Thursday's 1-2-3 show, I spoke with Sadia Usmani on my discoveries and also gave some tips to ensure your own safety. So uh, there are loads and loads of dating apps and dating sites on the internet. So we have the OkCupid, Tinder, Coffee Meets Bagel, Bumble. And there's this app that maybe some of our listeners won't be as familiar with. It's called Hey Mandy. It's very popular amongst youngsters in Hong Kong. So what's different about this app is that you talk to people, but there's no photos. Mm-hmm. Of you, so you just mm. just talk to people, you just chat without knowing what they how, look like. What they look like. If you put maybe your age or your height on your profile, then people will know who you know that about you. Mm-hmm. But or else, they just know nothing about you. It's wow. just that's a quite mystery. adventurous. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that because mm-hmm. I suppose half the process of elimination is that you think, okay, I need somebody who's six foot three yeah. and who's, who's done this, you know, and you, you do it like that. Mm-hmm. So that's quite an interesting one. Have you tried that one? Yes, Oh, I did. Okay, okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. So, so what else is there? Okay, so um, other than that, of course, uh, if you're uh, looking for maybe someone from the same sex, we have uh, Grindr mm-hmm. and other many apps out there. Mm-hmm. But um, I like to talk about uh, something related to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So um, obviously, because of the pandemic, we're always stuck at home, right? And because of that, we get lonely. We just wanted to find someone to talk to. Yes. <laughs> so um, on this uh, research by one of the most famous apps, Tinder, mm-hmm. and another site called Hinge, 75% of users express their desire to be in a relationship during of the pandemic and the lockdowns and that many users find themselves feeling lonely because of being stuck at home for so long yeah. be, without being able to socialize with friends. And uh, Tinder said that uh, conversations on the app were 32% longer during the pandemic because there isn't that physical interaction. So. The only thing that you can do is just chat longer mm-hmm. or maybe video calls, which I've never tried before. Mm-hmm. So uh, people use a video chat to stay connected, voice apps, and uh, 
50% of Tinder users have used video chat uh, with their match. Mm-hmm. On uh, the site, so if you go, if you aren't aware of how Tinder works, it's basically the swiping app, where if you swipe left, it's no, and mm-hmm. if you swipe right, it means that oh you're you're interested in this person, mm-hmm. and then if that person also is interested in you, the person swipe right, you could start chatting, mm-hmm. and uh, obviously things go from there, but if that person if if you've swiped Right, and that person doesn't, then you don't then, get to chat. It doesn't go forward. No, it doesn't go forward, and then just nothing really happens okay. from there. Okay. Mm-hmm. How much information, like uh, on Tinder and stuff, and in, in some of these apps, do you actually need to apart from Hey Mandy? Like, yeah, you know, do you need to put uh, about yourself about your profile? Like, is, is it as much as you want, or do they aren't they limit what you should put? Uh, let Let me take an example from another app called Coffee Meets Bagel. So uh, it is. <laughs> Very much like Tinder, uh, you put uh, your name, profession, how old you are, your height. Um, an interesting thing is that they actually offer the option to put whether you're vaccinated or not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, and yes, sorry. I've had my booster. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and also maybe if you're religious, it allows you to put um, if you okay. have any religious beliefs, are you spiritual or not? And something that is interesting that I haven't seen on other apps is that um, they have these prompts for you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, what is your perfect date? And then you just write whatever you want on those questions. And by doing that, you can actually get to know the, this person from these prompts and get a grasp of whether this person is maybe your type or if you have any similar interests. Mm-hmm. So th- this is uh, this app, uh, Coffee Meets Bagel, is what we call um, anti-swiping, apparently. Okay. So uh, you don't get to actually swipe left or right. Uh, if you're not interested, then you press no, then that's it. You don't have any other matches mm-hmm. for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. They just want um, actual conversations where you actually get to know the other person. Which is the which is the kind of most popular one that's being used at the moment? I think, I think um, in Hong Kong, of course, there's Tinder mm-hmm. and also Hey Mandy. Hey yeah. Mandy, coffee meets bacon. Are people going for Hey Mandy given the fact that you know there's going to be no pictures, there's going to be no, mm-hmm. uh, you know, nobody knows what you look like. Yes. It's just talking. Uh, is yes, that, it is popular. Then. Yes, it's very popular. Wow. And also, uh, we have Bumble. That's also another app mm-hmm. that's popular not only in Hong Kong but in other places. Maybe. Yeah, I know in the UK yeah. it seems to be quite popular. Yeah. Where I think the one thing about that is that it puts the onus on the woman to decide whether or not she's going to see. You know, if somebody's interested in her mm-hmm. when she puts a profile, yeah. she can actually say, "Well, no, I'm not interested," and that's it. And then yes. she determines whether she gives numbers out or anything mm-hmm. like that, exactly. which is good. There's yeah. control in yeah. in a woman's hands. Mm-hmm. So that's quite good. Mm-hmm. Good. I think what the general thing seems to be is that people say that the conversation that you have through texting mm-hmm. and, you know, when, when things are on paper, literally, you know, uh, on text or whatever, seems to be very good. Everything works out because people have a chance to speak yes. uh, and write what they want, mm-hmm. right? And then suddenly when people actually meet them, they're not at all like the text. Yes, exactly. Is that what you found? Yes. Yeah. Some people maybe are more playful or more maybe charming, for instance, 
and during their texts. Mm-hmm. But again, when you see them, they're a bit nerdy, and they. <laughs> I wouldn't say they're nerdy. They're just really nervous. Okay. They're more reserved, more shy. Yeah. Um, because maybe on text you can't see what the other person is actually feeling or yeah. their facial expressions, so you maybe feel more confident when yeah. when you're just texting. But again. Real life is a lot different because you can see how this person is reacting to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So yes, and um, I feel like um, people are. There's some people that I've met. They're just um, trying to be someone that they're not. Okay. For instance, okay. Uh, which which is possible. You can build a profile. Yeah. You can say all the right things, and mm-hmm. they just making an image of themselves, exactly, right? Exactly, yes. Yeah. And I know sometimes um, women can sometimes get into this situation where they think, my biological clock is ticking and I need to find somebody quickly. <laughs> um, so so they have to really just take your time and get to know mm-hmm. people. But there is great hope. I think these, these apps are very good. Yes. It really does open up channels. Of course, definitely. Uh, but if you are of our listeners out there are actually going to try these dating apps i have a couple of tips mm-hmm. for you mm-hmm. so one thing is first always meet at a public place yeah. don't meet at someone's house if you're meeting them for the first time because you could you don't know how this person looks like or no, no. you don't know how they, how they act you have to you have to actually be careful yeah and um always say no if you feel uncomfortable if you're in an uncomfortable situation you can always leave you don't need an explanation so don't feel pressured into doing things that you just don't feel comfortable with Mm -hmm. and um, always tell a friend or family member where you're going and develop some sort of a like a girl code so with my friends um, I developed some kind of code in terms of how this date is going with my friends they can ring you and get you out of there yes (laughs) Absolutely. Just say, your mum's called. She's just gone into the hospital. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, no, no, I understand that. Good tips. Any other tips? Uh, Also, um, take things slow. Yeah. Don't have any expectations. Yeah. Go with low expectations. Yes. Treat every date as if you're meeting a new friend. And if things progress from there, then cool, good for you. But if it doesn't, then just don't feel upset because, again, like what we mentioned, there are loads of people out there waiting to meet you. And that was me and Saudi Usmani on the 123 show. ESG is all the rage now. We often talk about sustainable and protecting the earth on this program. And this is where ESG comes in. ESG stands for environmental, social and governance, which is where businesses are applying these factors to process and identify material risk and growth opportunities. It's basically choosing materials that are less damaging to the earth, and it is getting more popular around the world, especially in Asia. To tell us more about it is Phineas Glover, head of ESG security research of Asia Pacific at Credit Suisse. He spoke to Peter Lewis about the latest trends in Asia and things we can look out for in the future. Well, I, I certainly feel that's, that's what the EU policy response is focused on. You know, it's right across the board. So it's, Let's really accelerate capacity additions. Um, let's actually get rid of the bottlenecks. Um, let's make it easier. Don't forget that um, all, you know, all forms of new new projects, new new infrastructure, they, they can take time. And you know, I'm, I'm certainly not saying that we should tear up the, the rule book there, but certainly policymakers have realised that you know we really need to get behind um, 
you know, actually supporting these projects much quicker. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, this is what, what's been a, you know, there's been policy support there, but what we're seeing now is that there's a kind of almost national, regional, um, you know, policy support. This is this is of such strategic importance that actually we're going to make it easier. We're going to we're going to support these capacity additions. So I, I think that's what we'll start to see. Uh, there are other issues. You know, it's not you know it's easy for the EU to say that fine. You know, we've got a very established energy grid. Um, it's not quite as easy for ASEAN countries, for example. You know, they need to extend their grid. That takes time. We had an announcement yesterday from Beijing of a target to produce up to 200,000 tonnes per year of carbon-free green hydrogen by 2025. And they also said they want to have 50,000 hydrogen-fuelled vehicles by that year as well. How significant is that? It's certainly significant. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we still rely on a huge amount of molecules-based um, power, right? You know, it's not just the grid. Mm. Um, and hydrogen certainly will play a role there. Um, you know, and, and we've certainly written a great deal on, on the hydrogen ecosystem, certainly, you know, big growth opportunities. But I think we just need to temper that with, um, in, in my view, you know, electrification ultimately will dominate in the energy transition. Um, that's the most, um, you know, the, the cheaper of the transitions in terms of electrification and levelised cost of energy. But hydrogen will be absolutely critical um, to, you know, at the higher point of the cost curve in terms of decarbonisation. So marginal abatement cost curve, um, you know, higher cost of carbon will support hydrogen in heavy industrials. Um, so it's really, really critical for things like steel. You can only get so far um, with electric arc furnace. That has a big role to play, particularly in China. Uh, but ultimately, you need to get to a point where you can fuel those blast furnaces with green hydrogen. And so it's really those heavy industrials and those really heavy forms of transport that you need much more power eventually so so what is the the next sort of like innovation if you like in in renewables and and new generation sort of energy efficiency what should we be looking at well i actually you know for me i'm i'm more intrigued in the opportunities from energy efficiency i think yeah huge amount of focus on on energy supply and, and absolutely you know we need to you know, really invest in our research and development there, uh, not, you know, not understating that. But I think there's so much more we can achieve with some of the technologies we're starting to see. Um, you know, simply something like lighting, um, you know, LED technologies, the advancements we're seeing there, micro LEDs, um, and all, you know, all the materials that will be needed to support that um, is hugely interesting. Um, so, you know, I, I think, um, you know, the technologies that support the demand side will be the next focus um, in markets, 100%. So where, where are the investment opportunities in Asia in, in this sector? Pretty broad. Pretty broad. Um, I mean, it, I mean, the headlines, you know, clearly for me, you know, EV, the whole ecosystem behind EVs, you know, that's 55% of oil demand. Uh, renewable energy on the supply side, um, you know, right across um, solar, wind, pumped hydro is particularly interesting. And then really your large-scale energy storage, um, you know, beyond just lithium-ion batteries, but actually looking at things like vanadium that gives you much longer duration. Um, as I said before, the whole ecosystem of that are interesting investment opportunities, really, because... I mean, just to give you a very basic example, um, I think it's around about um, six times 
the material, you know, the minerals are needed for an EV um, you know, versus a, an internal combustion engine, around about nine times the materials are needed for a wind farm versus a, a gas power station. So all of those, those um, electrification uh, minerals, or we like to call them climate transition materials, are extremely interesting. Mm. And I particularly like the diversified plays on that. So um, particularly like um, low-carbon um, aluminium, it's extremely interesting. Aluminium touches almost all forms of um, climate change technology or abatement technology. Um, copper is similar. Um, another material that's particularly interesting is boron that people perhaps are you know, less, um, less aware of. Uh, boron is essential in EVs, but it's also essential for the fertilizers that give us better yields on our food that will enable us, again, to get to net zero. Um, so, you know, I'm particularly bullish there in terms of the materials. Um, otherwise, you know, I would certainly go back to perhaps less uh, less talked about, but certainly essential technologies in terms of, like, insulation of buildings, um, low-carbon building materials, uh, absolutely important. So, you know, we, we've certainly been focusing quite a bit recently on low-carbon cement. I mean, cement is, you know, around 9% of global emissions. Mm. It's bigger than steel. Uh, but mm. no one really talks about it, but we're starting to see some really interesting innovation there around low-carbon cement. Phineas Glover on Thursday's Money Talk. Every week on Morning Brew, Phil usually talks with composer Colin Tutchin about classical music. Colin isn't available for a while, so Phil has been asking renowned musicians to join him to carry on the chat. On Wednesday, he was joined by famous English trumpet player Paul Archibald to find out about some of the most famous trumpet solos in the orchestra repertoire. None more legendary than the one you'll hear in just a few minutes. First thing that strikes me about a trumpet solo in an orchestra is there's no messing around, is there? You have got to be a warrior. Basically, yeah. I mean, the, the, as trumpet players, we always think uh, or talk about either being... Uh, scared stiff or bored stiff, <laughs> you know. And, and I would I would liken trumpet playing in an orchestra to a hundred yards sprinting. You know, your violins are the marathon runners; they're yeah. playing all the time. Whereas, just two things you've got to be: you've got to be brave, and you've got to be good at maths because you have a lot of bars rest to count. <laughs> yeah, you bet you do. Well, I mean. In your career, have you sort of said to yourself, some composers really know how to write for this instrument? Shall we say more than others? By the way, the pieces we're going to be playing in a minute, these are phenomenal, aren't they? Uh, well, I think so. And, uh, you know, I, I, when I chose these pieces, I wanted to show the kind of full range of what the trumpet does. Because yeah. obviously we know the heroic stuff and you'll hear that with Mahler 5. But it also has some incredibly beautiful moments, which mm. I hope this repertoire will, will reflect. How do you think that when we hit, say, 1900, 1910, and a bit more, the jazz age was kicking in, and the trumpet became really known as a jazz instrument. Did that really influence um, a lot of the so-called classical composers? I mean, boy, oh boy, Gershwin, let's start there. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And, and in fact, it's also the other way around, because oh, yeah. Gershwin also influenced jazz. Because the extraordinary thing is, when you think about Gershwin's music, that was cr really before the kind of 1950s. Yeah. He was writing his music about 1920s. So, of course, jazz was very different in the 20s than it is in the late sort of 50s and 60s. Yeah. So, so Gershwin was really quite ahead of his time. <laughs> I think he was. Well, let's go back to where the clock starts. I mean, when we first heard the trumpet in, a, in an orchestra, not even a symphony orchestra, the trumpet as we know it, not the sort of early Renaissance stuff, was it sort of um, a la post horn or was it doing more? 
Well, that's right. I mean, in the in the kind of late uh, 18th, early 19th century, the, the, the trumpet was really relegated to almost a percussion instrument. Okay. It didn't have valves, and it was just playing the simple, what we call harmonics. Uh, right. So that's just a few notes. Um, obviously, with the invention of the valves about 1820, the whole thing took off. So it meant that we could play all the notes. And, of course, composers like Mahler really took that, and Wagner, they really decided that they were going to exploit the sound of the trumpet. So... I mean, the poor guys in the uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, they probably didn't know what hit them because there was nothing quite like Gustav Mahler coming along and writing for the extremes of the register. Yeah, and that was, you know, it sounds like a super modern composer, of course not. That was way before its time. We're talking, you know, a long, long time ago still, aren't we? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Mar Marla was kind of late 19th century, so, yeah. you know, Marla 5 was written about 1901, 19, between 1901 and 1904, mm. so it's a long time ago. Before we get on to listen to a little bit of that, just stay with the early stuff. So you're saying you were just like almost a percussion instrument, you were marking bits here and there, but what was the reason, the raison d'etre of, of having that trumpet just going da-da-da back in yeah. the old days, do you think? Well, it, the, the classical period, which is when Mozart and Haydn were just writing these very basic parts, that was a reaction against the glory days of the trumpet, which was in Bach and Handel. Of course. You see, and of course you'll, we'll be hearing some of that, but of course the trumpet was the big superstar and they were paid lots of money. If, <laughs> if you were, if, yeah. well, it, well, exactly, and if you were a top trumpet player, you were kind of like a real household name, if they had household names mm. in those days. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very highly paid. There was a special guild that these guys belonged to. Gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was an extraordinary period to belong to. And, of course, music was very flamboyant in the Baroque period. Yeah. Um, and composers such as Mozart and Haydn, they just wanted to kind of do something a bit different. So the trumpet was the kind of casualty, really. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was a victim of its own success or something like that, right? Completely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let's turn to Gustav Mahler. Um, any trumpet player listening is probably quaking, even at the mention of this piece. Why don't you introduce the first thing we're going to hear, Paul? OK, OK. So Marla 5, as, as you've alluded to, is very famous. And, and you're about to hear why, because essentially the trumpet sets the tone for this piece. Now, this piece is uh, iconic because it, it, it showed that Marla was going in a different direction. Yeah. It was a bad time in his life when he wrote it. He just survived uh, a very tragic moment. He had a brain hemorrhage. He'd had a tragic life up until that point, so his mood was very, very gloomy. It did get better as he wrote the piece, but at, when you hear this opening, it's actually a funeral march, and the trumpet really intones the, this atmosphere, and it's even every time I hear it, it's really kind of very... Well, I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. It's not depressing, but it's, it's substantial. It really hits you how impressive this piece is. Well, you've been there. Let's set the scene a little bit further. So a full hall, massive concert hall, full of people, a huge orchestra on the stage. Conductor hasn't even listed, lifted his baton for the first beat. And then, and then when he does this... <laughs>
And that was trumpet player Paul Archibald on The Morning Brew. To end today's week on three, I'll be leaving you with a clip from Thursday's Afternoon Drive, where Steve James featured a couple of 1970s memory makers, right after offering some diet tips. See you next week, same time here on The Week on Three. I'm Christy Lai. It was one of the ideas I had for uh, a lame survey. I'm pretty sure we've done this as a lame survey before, or a 545 Club. Um, it's a go-to subject, but uh, it's a subject that keeps on giving. You know it's time to diet when... You know it's time to diet... When you dance and it makes the band skip. <laughs> You're diagnosed with a flesh-eating disease and the doctor gives you 22 more years to live. You know it's time to diet when you put mayonnaise on your aspirin. Mmm, mayo. You go to the zoo and the elephants throw you peanuts. You know it's time to diet when your driver's license says picture continued on other side. <laughs> you know it's time to diet when you learn that you were born with a silver shovel in your mouth. And your blood type is ragu. It's time to glance back in time once again right now. Uh, this day, 1973, the OJs went to number one on the US singles chart. It was a huge hit uh, around the rest of the world as well, which is appropriate because it's a song of unity mentioning a number of countries, including England, Russia, China, Egypt, Israel. They're all worked into the lyrics of Love Train.
are the memories being created by the love train of the OJs in the 1970s at around about the same time living in Hong Kong. Turned on your TV and caught a commercial for a certain airline. 